0: Thank you for downloading from Digital Mindfulness. This is episode number 33. This episode of Digital Mindfulness is sponsored by Semantica Research. A leading digital consultancy helping communications, social media and marketing professionals make better and more informed decisions from digital data. My guest today is Rohan Gunatilaka, Director of Mindfulness Everywhere, a creative studio that combines meditation, technology and design. Mindfulness Everywhere is best known for creating Buddhify, the mindfulness app for modern life, which has topped the charts in over 40 different countries. Rohan has an extensive background in mindfulness-based meditation and has worked for over 10 years in technology and innovation for the likes of IBM and Accenture. Rohan is also a trustee of the British Council and in 2012, Wired named him in their smart list of 50 people who will change the world. Rohan's first book has just been published, which is entitled, This Is Happening. I hope you enjoy this episode with Rohan Gunatilaka um okay so um so Rowan welcome welcome to the show welcome to digital mindfulness it's an absolute pleasure to have you on Um, at last i've been trying to sync our calendars up for many many moons now and it's a
1: pleasure to have you on great thanks Lawrence likewise it's super fun to be on
0: so Rowan can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself um how did you come to be working and having a really great interest at the vanguard of this intersection between mindfulness and technology?
1: I guess all by accident, really. So uh I got into meditation and mindfulness myself at the end of my university time at university. So for about 12, 13 years I've been practicing um uh meditation and the, i the key I guess the key thing was that I started the time I started meditating was at the same time I started working in London for like a big classic uh, management consultancy. So I was on one hand training in what is a medieval monastic Buddhist system. And then on the other hand, I was working in a fast-paced corporate digital environment and had a busy social life and all the stuff that comes with that. Um, And given that the style of meditation that I was doing, and indeed sort of um, continue the tradition that I train in, didn't really have models or language or practices that really mapped really well against a fast-paced digital urban relational social life, right? So um, I had a choice. I either Compartmentalised my practice into this thing that was not connected to the rest of my my life, or I just combined them and worked out for myself how to make those two things work. And so, my own personal practice was very much all, of, all, all at the beginning. I used to call it urban meditation. So, um, uh, in contrast to what you might call forest or monastic practice, so learning how to develop concentration, compassion, or self awareness. Uh, whilst in London at the time, I now live in Scotland, but at the time I was in London. So, um, so that was happening just in my personal life, and then along the while, I was working in technology and then sort of innovation, and um, and then after about ten years of effectively being a consultant, I a point came where I was like, I'm bored of helping other people make stuff. I could I know how to do this now. So I had a great network of digital and designer talent. I'd learned a lot around um, innovation practice and service design and all these sort of um, things that are really useful when designing products. And then then I decided to, yeah, so I decided I was really interested in making my own product. And it naturally made sense that um, it was to do with meditation, mindfulness, given that that was the area that I had a lot of expertise in. And particularly this whole thing about urban practice, and then ultimately it just it was, it was sort of an inevitable thing when um, this was about twenty eleven, I guess, and uh, lots of people were lots of my fr- basically lots of my friends would say, "I'm really interested in this meditation and mindfulness thing, but it's too hippie and I don't have time." Mm-hmm. Um, and as a person who worked in innovation and design, I realized, and someone who had a long urban meditation practice, I realized those those two things, the time problem and the hippie problem were not intrinsic to practice. They were merely design challenges. Um, so the first app we made, which was uh, called Budify, we designed, I designed specifically to solve those two problems. And then out of that, um, The first prototype version of Budify, I literally made it on like some savings and spare time. And uh, it did surprisingly well. And then I took all the money from that and created uh, the newer version on Budify, which is the one which is in app stores at the moment. And that has continued to do really well and has allowed me to effectively build a company around making well-designed mindfulness products for people for whom conventional mindfulness uh, Interventions don't quite work for them.
0: Gosh, so the hippie problem and the time problem, with, and these are the two main challenges that challenges that you saw that were holding people back from, um, like you said, incorporating mindfulness into their into their busy lives. Um, I'm really interested with regards to the um, Budify app, and we'll come back to this a bit later, but. How well did that do globally?
1: Sure. So um, uh, but, uh, gen- basically, Budapha has done well enough to mean that uh, I can run a company with a couple of people that make mindfulness products full-time, which is insane. Like the fact that this is my job is just ridiculous. Um, <laughs> and uh, and also, like, it's done, done well to the sense that um, – It's been the number one health and fitness app in 40, 45 countries. Um, uh, Just this week, BuzzFeed named it the best meditation app around. We've had loads of really good press. And it's all pretty much been word of mouth. Um, We're a tiny company, sort of entirely self-funded. We don't do lots of PR or marketing. So we really rely on uh, our players just having a really good experience and them telling their friends about uh, how useful it 's been, and that's sort of uh, we've sort of grown through that organic word of mouth, which is priceless really
0: when you were working um in London um doing consulting, could you see yourself doing like being where you are right now like could I guess my real question is could you see the um, um beginning streams of this groundswell coming up this move towards being mindful in a hyper-connected society
1: yeah I think definitely I think um because uh, I effectively placed a bet I've been placing bets on this on this whole area growing and uh, mm. all the work we do is just we're constantly doubling down on the our belief that this whole area whether you call it mindfulness or uh well-being mental well-being is sort of a broad public conversation an area of interest and particularly an area of interest with a growing market for consumer products. Um, uh, there's two things. One is the 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 growth of mindfulness in, uh, over the last five to ten years has just been really predicated by the amount of uh, scientific research into it. Um, mm-hmm. Because because once you have that kind of data, it's very very different to just some Tibetan bald guys telling you that this stuff is good for you versus a pile of um you'll have seen this this classic sort of graph of the number of research papers related to mindfulness every year for the last 20 years and it's just a massive hockey stick um and uh as soon as you have uh relatively rigorous scientific data that opens up companies being interested it opens up Uh, the healthcare aspect opens up people who are skeptical about it Mm because the people who are interested from a spiritual perspective or more of a hippie perspective will always get interested in it Uh, but these other audiences needed other types of marketing and data has basically been the marketing tool the most important marketing tool for mindfulness um, in recent times so that's on the sort of one side and on the other side as you're as this podcast has document documents really well, the fact that um, life isn 't getting any easier <laughs> right? yeah. so you've got both these two both these two things uh coming together, and the fact that um, what 's allowed me and my company to enter the space has been uh, i guess the relatively cheap cost of production of stuff of products um, and the fact that uh, we hold a very quite a rare skill set, which is a really deep understanding of mindfulness as well as a pretty deep understanding of design and product and technology. Um, and so uh, that's why I'm optimistic for this space is that um, uh, we've always had people with deep meditation practice, but we've not had a lot of people who have that experience and also are software designers or are... Um, uh, UX designers, or whatever they are, but now um, people—we're starting to see more people with what I call this twin literacy of a digital literacy and a mindfulness literacy—and um, uh, then I just happen to express that through my company and our products. And other people will express it in different ways, and that's my why I'm sort of excited and optimistic about this whole area.
0: Fabulous. And kind of going on from that in these mindfulness products, um, you've also just published a new book, which is called This Is Happening.
1: It is. Um, It's pretty good, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's a great title. Um, And it's, of course, now on Amazon. And I was wondering if you can tell us... And other
1: bookstores with real uh, buildings. Although Amazon are launching a bookstore with a real building as well. So when I started Budify and the company, I never thought... We were purely a app company. Um, I was very much driven by the idea that you create the product in the in the medium that is most appropriate. So, Budify solves a problem in a very specific way for people, and the and using the phone is the exact perfect way to do that. Um, but uh, in this is happening, there's as well as all the practical guidance that and exercises and um, explanations of mindfulness practical stuff that uh, the the app also has to a certain extent. Um, I'm able to share the sort of the the theory and principles and history and um, thinking behind this whole area, which isn't necessarily appropriate for an app, which requires more of a direct experience straight away. Um, So uh, it's inappropriate to do a sort of quick history of mindfulness uh, when someone wants to just have a, listen to a meditation whilst they're on the train. But it's something that I can include in the book Um, and books are still really important right like it's still they're probably still the number like if you look at the whole category of whether you call it pop psychology self-help mind body spirit mindfulness itself it's such a massive category for publishing Um, and so a lot of people still uh, use books for for finding their way through this stuff um so uh, it made a lot of sense for for me to write one. And I was very fortunate to have a great publisher, um, uh, an agent to support me on the way to do that. And importantly, one of the I guess um one of the things when planning the book is might be interesting to know is that um as, long as you know, like within Buddhify, the whole conceit of that is that you practice in every situation. So there are tracks for when you're on the train and eating and working online and so on. Mm-hmm. So with the book, I was like, How do you actually because one of my problems with um, one of my motivations for writing this is happening was also the fact that I found, despite how many mindfulness books there are out there, a lot of them are just the same. Um, uh, they basically say the same thing again and again, a little bit conservatively, um, and uh, didn't didn't necessarily reflect a very progressive perspective of mindfulness. Um, and so I wanted to, if I was to write. A mindfulness book. I just didn't want to write just another mindfulness book. I wanted to bring something new to the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, this whole thing around how do you so how do you um, how do you have a genuine mindfulness practice when you actually don't, you don't have time for formal sitting? How do you have a genuine? How do you practice mindfulness when you have a very active digital life? Um, like solving and solving those problems were really important. Um, and this whole, I I don't know, I, something I really hate about, I guess, um, a lot of my first books is uh, you'll often find grey boxes. So I don't know, I, sort of where you'll read a whole section and then there'll be a practice like in a grey box um, going, now go and sit quietly for 20 minutes and do this exercise. And like, no one does that, right? Like, who does that? Like, as soon as I see a grey box in a book, I just ignore it and move on to the next bit. And so one of the tricks we tried to pull off was, can you actually practice, do all that stuff whilst reading the meat of the book? Um, so I introduce core techniques, whilst which you, which you are literally doing whilst you're reading it. So there's no, you don't have to, if you read the book, you're practicing mindfulness, which is sort of the, the trick we tried to pull off. And I think we managed to do it.
0: So um, so, yeah, so, what I'd really like to do is just to kind of delve a little bit deeper Um, into the book itself, because um, you're right, there are absolutely loads of books on meditation in the market already. But one of the things that you really emphasise in the book is this idea of mobile meditation. I was wondering if you can tell the audience what mobile meditation is and why it's so important to be present in the digital age, because surely the world just wants us with our digital devices to just speed
1: up. Sure, so uh taking that first bit, the conventional way of presenting meditation is predominantly uh formal meditation, so uh it's a thing that uh, sort of sitting sitting meditation, going to a quiet special place for ten twenty thirty minutes um and then the the assumption when you they when they teach you when that is the the way of teaching is that the benefits of that practice will then leak into the rest of your life um the main problem with that is whilst that can happen the the rest of your life looks very different to that special form or place because if you lead a very busy life then um and you're training your mindfulness in an environment that looks nothing like the rest of your life then a lot of people find it really hard to um uh to integrate what they've what they've, what they've uh, learned in formal practice into the rest of yeah the, into the busyness of it all so mobile meditation simply takes the the alternative uh, angle and basically says how about instead of doing 80 percent of your meditation practice in a formal way and 20 percent of it in a mobile way why don't you actually focus mainly on the mobile practice so basically learning techniques genuine authentic mindfulness techniques but ones which you're doing when you're at work when you're talking to your partner when you're walking around town when you're taking a break when you're uh, checking Instagram why don't we actually train learn how to train mindfulness in the situations where we actually probably need it the most and then If you want to really deepen that uh, experience, we can then do our formal practice as a sort of way of deepening and supporting our understanding. So mobile practice is really that, the idea of predominantly making the majority of our lives the the place we practice meditation. And this solves the time problem that we mentioned before, because Mm. if you can't find time for formal practice, that's fine. But there's 16 hours. If you if you say you assume you sort of sleep for eight hours a day, if you're lucky, then there are 16 hours. I'm saying that, with through mobile mindfulness and really getting an understanding of that, you can practice for up to 16 hours a day, um, mm-hmm. if you know how. Um, and all you need to know is basically like understanding core techniques and how to then apply those core techniques to all these various activities. So that's the mobile thing, and I think. What, the reason I think it's so important is because it's incredibly accessible um it's fun it can be playful and you um, it can take the pressure off having to find time for things and uh, like as you as you become more and more proficient in mobile practice you'll end up probably wanting to do uh, more and more formal practice anyway or you may not um but if, if putting all the pressure on sitting meditation um the pro- the problem with that is that People just find that really hard to do, um, mm. even if you have a lot of dedication and sometimes life just gets in the way right um, and so the challenge of mobile practice uh, is is no longer finding time. The challenge then becomes remembering to do it um, and that's an easier problem to solve actually than given that time is such a scarce resource. Um, but a luxury good time is a luxury good is something i often talk about but um the uh, the second thing around why why we need it in this time. Um, Just so many reasons, right? Because just, uh, I guess one of the big themes of this podcast is why I sort of, in uh, one of the reasons I enjoyed listening to so much is this whole question of, uh, you've spoken to loads of people who talk about how uh, the people that make our software are designing it in such a way to um, manipulate our attention and uh, essentially, um, farm our attention into commercial gain, right? Okay. Either through advertising or through whatever whatever business model or style of, um, typically through advertising. Um, so, the the world the world of advertising and the world of social networks and all these giant companies they all understand the value of our attention, um, literally understand the monetary value of our attention. But the real sadness is that. We as individuals tend not to. Um, and whilst there are other tools available, absolutely, I think mindfulness, because it is put so much emphasis on awareness and attention, mindfulness is one of the very few tools actually we have available which allows us to bring a bit more uh, control and agency to how we place our attention because a lot of, lot of, uh, a lot of the world is trying to to uh, manipulate it, and not always for the good, so uh, given that that 's happening, why wouldn 't you want to um, develop the skills and capacities to place our attention in ways which are actually beneficial for us
0: mm. One of the um, one of the things you just spoke about here was kind of move in the book moving away from what you called um, grey boxed exercises that no one does so that's, that's a great term for it because you're right i i tend to skip over these boxes i think i'll come back to them oh I you never, never do, do. Anyway. yeah never, I never, do. Do. never like do.
1: When, I, when i when i like a uh, favorite a tweet that i think i'm going to read later i totally never do
0: <laughs> um but I'm wondering with this whole idea of mobile meditation, and you use another phrase in the book, which is great, which I think you called it informal meditation. Yeah, that's right? that's
1: it's typically called informal meditation. So, um, but the reason I call it mobile is when you call it informal, it makes it sound, it makes it sound worse than formal. So there's yeah. a va- there's a value judgment inherent in the word informal, in the word informal, which makes it feel like it's a second-class citizen so the sitting is the really cool stuff and everything all this mobile stuff is just oh you know it's just uh uh second-class practice um and i think that's really unfair uh, historically there's lots of really good examples historically all the way back to the origins of mindfulness practice you can the, the idea of doing this stuff in every activity has been fundamental and it's actually only relatively recently that um We've sort of made this formal sitting a very sort of special holy object, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's still really important. Absolutely, don't get me wrong. Like, I think formal practice is amazing, and I do it all the time, and it's really important. But um, it's uh, to, to only consider mindfulness and meditation as being just that is incredibly limiting. Do you think then
0: that with the more mobile meditation that we do, that this would somehow lessen or weaken our practice? Do you think it's a more shallow form of meditation? Or do you think that the more that we do mobile meditation, that the better we get at it?
1: This is, yeah, I think you've raised a really, really important point. I think this idea of if someone finds a technique that helps them in stressful situations at work, and they never do any other form of practice why do we call that shallow like if mm. um i think there's an a like so much of the mindfulness industry is trying to turn us all into meditators rather than trying to solve our problems i think this is one of the one of my critiques um i guess of the mindfulness scene at the moment is that we've valorized and valorized and uh this whole the formal meditator when actually Yes, it is absolutely true that the roots of mindfulness come from a spiritual practice and a religious background. And, and, and it's something that I know very well, and I practice in that style. Um, but why, the problem is that just because it came from that root, people still continue to look through that lens as being the most important thing. So if Rory McElroy wants to use a mindfulness technique to improve his putting, What's that going to do with any, like whose business is that to say that that's shallow or like that isn't good enough? Like it's mm-hmm. absolutely, it's, it's, we need to look at, this is the, the sort of the um, a really sort of fundamental aspect to sort of how we design our products and how we think about mindfulness is that designing, this, this idea of sort of user centered design, right? So um, starting where people are and creating techniques that solve the problem that they have So if someone has a problem with uh, sleep or with um, uh, anxiety at work, then let's give them a practice that helps them in that situation. If they then want to explore the wider uh, opportunity and wider landscape that mindfulness and the history of mindfulness has to offer, then that's great, but we don't have to assume that they have to do that or that that's necessarily the, the objective um, but I think there's a, um, I, I, ch- I sort of challenge the idea that we all need to, we all need to become formal meditators that sit for 20 minutes a day. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that. I, my, my, I think what's more interesting and more practical is to give people the tools and skills and techniques to solve the problems that they have. Um, and if they, yeah, if they then want to deepen their practice, then that's great. Um, So starting with the user rather than starting with tradition. And this is the, uh, this is the reason why we why we do what we do. So why my company does what we do. So so I think the the key, the key thing to recognize the difference between starting with the user and starting with tradition. Mm -hmm. So um, historically, uh, for example, um, uh, the For example, so let's take digital mindfulness products, right, Mm. Uh, apps and so on. So we have a really well-established style of teaching mindfulness, which is um, the MBSR, so the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction or the Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy style, which is the classic sort of six to eight week course. You go for two hours every week and then you do your homework every day. And it's a really effective course. There's loads of research into how useful it is for various conditions and so on. And the the challenge, the problem is, is that that MBSR course has now become its own holy object, and so when people make products with mindfulness, they all they tend to think is, we just have to convert the MBSR course into an online version of it. And what they do is then they make okay, so uh, they make a system where they have lectures, and um, you do. Uh, so we watch loads of lectures and you do 20 minutes of practice every day, basically like making exactly the same thing as a face-to-face uh, MBSR course, but delivered through digital means. Mm. Um, but, the pro- but the problem is like the people who that isn't necessarily meeting the user where they are because the majority of a lot of people can't make, don't have just don't have the time for that. Maybe the reason they haven't gone to an MBSR, they might have been an MBSR class next door to them, but they've giving them an app that gives them the same style of intervention isn't necessarily going to help them. Um, so why don't you start with the realities of the user's life and create a product which is much more designed to it? Um, and I think this, uh, this is the big opportunity that I see, which is uh, we've historically not really used really quite basic design principles in the world of mindfulness. We've just assumed that the traditional way is the best way to do it. And if you can't do it that way, then you're wrong, and we're not wrong, but you're wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, another example like that this, this is quite common, and maybe you've come across it yourself, Lawrence. So, you go to a class, the f- like a very classic. If you go to a meditation class, the first the first exercise you'll do is uh, following your like paying attention to your breath and following it, and um, so on. That's actually a really hard technique to start with. Um, uh, It it often makes the user quite frustrated. Thank you. Um, It it makes them uh, feel like they don't know what they're doing. So you're you're basically the first experience that most people have in mindfulness in meditation is a bad one. Mm -hmm. And that's just incredibly bad design, in my opinion. Um, Why don't we create their first experience to be fun and playful and interesting as much as possible? um, So that then they start going, okay, how do I explore this more rather than giving them an experience where... 50% 50% of people never come back um, because it was too hard or they felt I could, I did it. I couldn't do it. Um, so the, that's, yeah, that's, that's where I think the opportunity lies. Do, do you think
0: as well that this is a case of us just starting now to have this conversation? You know, they were actually just starting to think, okay, look, just simply overlaying traditional approaches, um, through a digital medium isn't working and that we have to think of different ways like for example your your company uses the app there are other people using wearables um there are other people doing digital detoxes which I know you're not a fan of and we're going to get to this (laughs) later on (laughs) but um but there are all of these different approaches that people are taking to um um to help people um reduce their stress, increase their creativity, um, all of these things that um, MBSR promises to do?
1: I um, I think a really important thing to note is that the history of mindfulness has always been one of innovation and change. So back in the day, MBSR was a massive innovation back in the day the style of practice in burma that was that mbsr effectively comes out of was a massive innovation in the context of monastic practice in burma so and so the, the history of mindfulness and meditation is full of examples of uh, new styles of practice being designed to better suit uh, people's needs and better better suit the culture as it changes um so I just think that this, this whole area is part of that great story and great history of innovation. Um, the, the caveat I would put onto that is mm-hmm. that um, I'm a bit of a, uh, I'm a, I'm a meditation geek. I'm an old school, like I I, I really have a, I have a lot of love and respect for the mindfulness tradition. I know it very well. Um, and my one of my concerns is that like, uh, well, not one of my concerns, but what I think is most important is that the people, those are companies who, who are creating these products and whether it's through wearables or apps or classes or whatever it may be, um, I think what makes them the most powerful that they can be is that if they themselves have a deep understanding of mindfulness Mm-hmm. Um, and then they express it through a wearable or they express it through um, uh, a game or a children's book or whatever it is, um, rather than just going, oh, shiny bit of technology. All oh, mindfulness is cool at the moment. Let's make a thing. Um, I think that is where the sort of confusion and uh, a lot of the confusion and sort of noisiness of the this whole space can arise. Um so uh, yeah, that would be my, my wish. And I, I, like, like. so it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a sort of paradox in that sense of like maintaining the purity and integrity and authenticity of what I consider cl- like classical mindfulness practice while at the same time expressing it through new media and new technology. Um, yeah, and it's a challenge, right? It's a real, it's a real challenge, I think. Um, it's something we think about a lot is like how do you balance authenticity with innovation? It is totally possible, uh, but um, and it really work the examples I've seen where it works best is where the people making the product products have just have a great deep understanding of the practice in the first place because um, like I was saying that there's a lot of
0: literature out there. Um, um, on mindfulness and on meditation and a lot of it um, in my opinion isn't very good Um, but there's some there that is really really outstanding and and of course there's a lot of um, scientific data to back this up like you see now the datification aren't you of mindfulness and meditation if you like so that's giving it uh, a a support and a crux so that people can invest in this in corporations or that scientists can, like, can talk about it robustly. But I'm just wondering if we're perhaps focusing too much on the role of mindfulness in our life. And actually, because we're talking about how now we live in a digitized world, if maybe we're missing other approaches that might be good that you might have heard of, that you might have been experimenting with.
1: Sure, I think I absolutely agree that I think we're in a, as a culture, we're in an evangelical moment with regards to mindfulness. So Mm. when an individual, when you or me first get into meditation and mindfulness and we we realize how useful it is for ourselves, um, one of the first things that happens is that we try to tell all our friends about it. Um, And uh, I see this all the time, right? People... Who get into mindfulness, get really excited about it in a really lovely way. Um, and uh, then, yeah, they've become evangelists for it. Um, mm-hmm. And that's sort of where we are now as a society is that we've, we've sort of only in the last few years really clocked what this whole mindfulness thing is about and its potential. And uh, we're getting a lot of uh, column inches and so on written about it. And sort of supported this sort of hype cycle, and I, I sort of maybe agree with you in that it sort of resulted in too, ironically, too much attention on it, um, and uh, more importantly, that maybe too much pressure on mindfulness to be like the thing that's going to save us. It's a good um, point. And uh, like I said, like I think it's one; it's an important tool in an attention economy. I think a skill set which builds our attentional skills, is always going to be useful. So I don't think mindfulness is going to become unuseful at any point. Um, But if you look at mental health and mental well-being in general, we can never, we have to, we can't ignore things like exercise, daylight, social interaction. Like, these are, like, fundamental things that um, I often, you often see these sort of listicle articles of, like, the five things you can do to improve your mental health. And too often we just forget the basics, such as do some exercise, eat well, spend some time outside, spend some time with people you care for, do something kind for another person. Um, and by instead, like, we just, it's all about, oh, do some meditation, which is like, yeah. it's definitely on the list, but I wouldn't say it's, it would be like the, like the first thing to do. <laughs> Um, it's interesting as well, isn't it? Because in your book, <clears throat> this is one of the
0: very first things that you speak about in terms of this whole mobile meditation thing that, that you're actually thinking, okay, how can I incorporate my practice into my everyday life? And, and it was almost like on your commute while you were walking to work. So kind of mixing this whole physicality of, and meditation um, together. I thought that, that was really interesting. That really jumped out of me.
1: Yeah, I think um, it's ultimately like my ambition, just generally, is to, and definitely for the book, is to make for people to. We have a we have a history in mindfulness in the meditation world of it being about uh, people telling you what to do, right? So you download an app, and then some guy just tells you what to do, and you do it. Um, and uh, whether it's a monk telling you what to do or um, uh, a meditation app, um, the, that, that sort of idea of, um, the, sort of the expert knows how to do things and you don't really have any power. You just have to follow instructions. Um, it's still, a, it's still an important teaching model, but I think, uh, what I'm excited about is people giving people the tools and permission to work it out for themselves. Right. So, um, I think the, the, we live in a world where uh, so much of our life is very personalized and customized. The fact that um, uh, we can watch House of Cards all in one weekend if we want to, rather than having to wait for one episode every week. The, medita- the conventional meditation world is still stuck in a broadcast model. Whereas we will, the rest of the world's moved on to iPlayer, right, and onto Netflix, and so um, the uh, creating more ways for people to uh, create a well-being system, whether it includes mindfulness or exercise or whatever that really fits their life, um, that really works for them, mm-hmm. um, is a good thing to aspire to. I don't think um, mindfulness, the sort of mindfulness, doesn't hold all the answers. Um, And I think it's for us, all of us, to sort of work out what really works for us, what doesn't work for us, um, and constantly actually ask that question so that we're um, uh, making sure that we're doing as well as we can. Um, I I love that. That's really
0: interesting, almost like having a toolkit of approaches to improving the way that we live our life in a digitised society and with our digital devices, because but is that where sleepfulness fits into um, the whole philosophy of what your company's trying to um, yeah,
1: achieve? The, the, the important thing to know about sleepfulness is that it's a sleep app that uses mindfulness rather than a mindfulness app for sleep. And the reason that it sounds a bit technical and nitpicky, but that's really important because the, one of the problems with mindfulness at the moment is we've, sort of fetishized the process of mindfulness we've we've made whereas the outcome is for me is the most important thing mm. so um, people don't my experience of the hundreds of thousands of people who've used our stuff is that very few of those people practice mindfulness to be mindful that the people practice mindfulness to sleep better to have better relationships to be more concentrated at work to be more attentive to their husband and wife and those are the reasons that are important um and so uh the the idea of sleepfulness is simply to like we've learned through buddhify that sleep was effectively the number one problem that our user base had um and it just affects so much so many other parts of their lives um and but if you if you look at if you sort of do some simple studies of uh, Google searches or the App Store, think about the number of people who type in "I want to meditate" versus "I want like how ha- how do I meditate" versus "How do I get to sleep." Mm. Like you can't even compare those two numbers, right? Um, so why not make a sleep product that uses all the mindfulness techniques rather than? Front something as being all about mindfulness, um, and it just happens to help your sleep. So I think this idea of focusing on the outcome rather than the process is really, really important. Um, uh, and, it, and it's a—it's obviously a, just as a company, it's a much bigger market for us as well. For sure. Um, so that's uh, important. And also, like, there's a bit of irony. There's a bit of a not irony. There's a bit of a um, uh, issue again in that. Um mindfulness is all about uh, is a lot of mindfulness is about alertness and uh awakeness. Um and sleep sleep is obviously the opposite of that. Um uh and so uh uh we've had to sort of do we've done some interesting work around how to um uh so the the type of stuff in sleep in sleepfulness is a sort of a subset of the whole family of the mindfulness set of techniques I guess are the most suited for uh most suited for sleep um but importantly I think uh there's a different there's there's so many different reasons why people can't get to sleep there's not only the um uh everything from anxiety to restlessness to Mm non-stop mind and all these different types of aspects and all of those things with uh, things that mindfulness have have been uh working with for years and years right so um So I think this is definitely one of our, something like the way we approach product design um, is that we make products in one of two ways. The first Mm -hmm. way is to solve a very specific problem. So sleepfulness solves a very specific problem. Um, And the other way, the other type of product we make uh, is uh, to evolve the whole area of mindfulness uh, itself. So we're working on, One of the products in sort of stealth development, if you like, at the moment, is a product which um, uh, uh, tries to evolve how we understand uh, meditation. Because I think one one of my main, it's a bit of a paradox again, but as someone who makes a decent livelihood from meditation apps, is that one of the unintended consequences and problems of mindfulness apps is that, um, especially those where which are uh, dominated by guided audio is that we've made people who are really good at meditating by themselves um but historically a lot of the benefit of meditation practice is because we've been we we do it with others um and we've created uh, it's a real, it's a it's a problem I think about a lot um which is like the 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 the, yeah, the unintended consequences of the success of mindfulness like Headspace and Buddhify and Calm and all these, all these ones is that, um, we've, we've got a generation of meditators who are individuals, um, and, mm-hmm. uh, don't have a, don't have a big social aspect to their practice. And so, um, that's why we're working on something to explore that opportunity because, um, it's a, it's a... It it means that we can evolve the whole area of mindfulness apps as a whole, because that's something that we care about, not just um, uh, making the most commercially successful apps around, Um, we're primarily motivated about um, bringing as much creativity and innovation to the mindfulness space as possible so that uh, we can broaden uh, the definition of what mindfulness technologies can be.
0: Fabulous.
1: (laughs) To to make a very,
0: very slight segue, um, the digital detox movement is really gathering pace, particularly when you have celebrities declare that they're going on digital detoxes and companies springing up all over the world to facilitate digital detoxes. But you don't believe in them. In fact, you think that the term itself is damaging. And I was wondering why that's the case.
1: Sure. Well... I think there is value to spending time away from one's devices. Um, I'm not denying the value of that. Um, But there's two issues. One is, I guess, as you intimate, the word calling a digital detox implies that our technologies are toxic, which is a really, really, really big problem. (laughs) Because um, if we pathologize our comms technologies or our devices, uh in this kind of way then like it's it's hardly as like it's given that how how much they underpin our lifestyles our economy and our societies then if we're if the if the if the number one sort of driving force behind all these things is something that we think is toxic then we're heading towards a giant car crash (laughs) basically (laughs) so um uh so, yeah, like like I don't if if that's our only strategy, if your only strategy to deal with your deal with the the stresses of your phone is to throw it in the river then then good luck um, uh, but I think um the we have to alongside the appropriate uh amount of the uh spending time away and turning things off, we also just have to actually. Improve our relationship with our device as well, so that they we can allow them to be uh, what I call mind positive, rather than uh, stressful or anxiety inducing, or whatever it is for you. Um, uh, because I don't want, yeah, like I don't want to like. It's like being. It's like, it's this is a this is a very strong analogy, so I I use it with caution. But I think it's a bit like. Um, uh, actually, I'm not going to say that at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, so I, t- I talk about, like, uh, in the context of this this area, I talk about three R's. So retreat, which is the digital detox. Um, so turning everything off, taking some time away. I talk about uh, relating, so improving our relationship to technology, so, that a lot of that is the bulk of the the sort of the the techniques in the book, which involve digital devices and technologies. Show you how you can actually use these things to be supportive of ourselves. And then the third uh, is redesign, which is the the more higher level industrial side things, um, which is where you start. Uh, including users' well-being in the design of software and hardware, um, and uh, I don't, I don't have the answers for all of that. But I think, as an individual user, um, the best we can do is know when it's appropriate to turn stuff off. When it's not, when we when stuff is on, then we at least have a skillful relationship with the devices. Um, and as consumers, we're aware that the industries are often trying to manipulate our attention. So if we, if we can hold all those things uh, at the same time, then uh, we give ourselves the best sort of holistic sh- chance, I think, rather than only having a, a single binary crude strategy of detox.
0: Mm. How do you, Rowan, how do you every day create a positive um, relationship not just with technology, but also with digitised society? And how do you recommend other people go about doing that?
1: I don't have a strict regime, but what I do have is the level of self-awareness so that if I am playing with my 10-week-old son and I notice myself getting bored and wanting to check Twitter, then I'm like, whoa, that is a problem, right? (laughs) Yeah. So, like, like the key... the, the the superpower is is the awareness there, um, and then noticing that that's happening and then uh, being able to uh, having the skill to not necessarily follow the habit. One thing I think that is important is also is to with regards to the whole uh, society aspect is to start with the perspective that it's not a problem because I think if we start with the uh, if we start with the as the the attitude that we're constantly going to be in conflict with it, then we'll, we'll, that's what we'll see, right? So um, if we start with the uh, an optimistic uh, point of view and perspective that actually um, technology is broadly on our side, then that's often a good place to start. And then couple that with the self-awareness that when we notice our uh, attention being taken away in ways that we, aren't, we wouldn't necessarily want. So um, whether you're having conversation or dinner with your partner or spending time with your children or on a date or at work, whatever it is, and you notice your mind being uh, pulled away to check Twitter or check out of that conversation entirely, then if we didn't have that awareness in the first place, then we wouldn't see that pattern. So that's, a, that's sort of a key thing. Um, and there's something I, I think a little get sort of slightly gets under explored actually which is um how it's something for example when I was um writing the book and I had to like writing a book is relatively requires a lot of concentration and focused attention and it was a really good opportunity to me to sort of see how my distractions work so I studied like how like paid a lot of attention to um, when I was had. I sat down to write my 2,000 words and suddenly I'd be doing something entirely different. Um, and it's easy to blame the technology's fault for that. And the technology definitely is a contributor. It makes it very frictionless to get distracted. But what I found most powerful was actually becoming aware of how I felt before the distraction happened. And what I found typically was that, I was bored. I was lonely. I was feeling maybe a bit sad, and and as a result, my mind, in, in in effectively in a compassionate act, went out to distract myself and look at Twitter or check my email as a way to fix my problem, which was actually the the sadness or the loneliness or the boredom, um, and so. Uh, but when you have that level of ability to to notice the mind state, the emotional state and be able to just let that let that go and let it just work its work its way out. Then um, that is then the sort of you take away the power from the, the devices to even sort of pull you away in the first place. Um, so that like. Yeah, but well, I'm the mindfulness guy, right? So I've got, like, <laughs> my answer is basically like do loads of mindfulness. But um, uh, the great thing about um, relate like the great thing about like uh, a baby or a partner who's really straightforward with you is that you'll know pretty soon when you're when you're attentional when you're when how you're attending to someone isn't okay so if you're having dinner with if you're having dinner with your partner and then she notices that you're in the middle of an important story that she's telling you that you're you you just go and see what's happening in the arsenal game like that um uh that you'll end up sleeping on the sofa right so there's a nice feedback there's a really nice simple feedback loop which shows you the, the negative impact of, uh, of using your attention in those ways. And so, and likewise with a, what I've, what's been really lovely about becoming a father just recently is that it's a whole new domain of practice for me. It's a whole new area to explore and discover for how to use the skills that I already have in, in different ways. And um, it's so clear like when um, a newborn baby like really demands you to, to be present Uh, with it Um, and that is a really so put almost like put like um, making sure that uh, you have in some way you have some sort of feedback for how um, how your how your sort of attention and awareness is doing Um, and yeah like not everyone can have a a newborn baby or not everyone's in a relationship but um, uh, to do that Um, but I think uh, just finding what works, like how, like if, if being present is important to you or if being just, I would, I, would put, I would put it down to this. like, What is the most important quality in your life at any one time? So it can be anything from concentration, connection with others, presence, being able to deal with difficult emotion, um, body awareness, whatever it is, right? So just choose one or quality that is important to you. And then just check it like during the day. Like score yourself from one to five like during the day. Like, okay, uh, at, during this activity, my body awareness is rubbish. During this activity, my body awareness is really high. And then just use that information to improve it. Um, so this is this whole thing about focusing on the result so, um, and having some way of sort of tracking how you're doing. Um, so I think that, that's for me, is, in, if anything, that is my regime. It isn't an actual... I think I'm very wary of telling. Again, I'm very wary of telling people what to do, and also you come across as a bit of a douchebag if you say, "Well, I only check my emails between one and two p.m." Aren't I great? It's like, well, that's all very well. I just, I, I can't really like. I understand why that advice is, why that kind of stuff is useful, but um, just me telling you to do that is makes no sense because my life is completely different to your life, and so. Um, there's only much transferable skill set you can, you can apply to that. But what is transferable is like understanding what are the positive qualities you want in your life and track them somehow and, do the, and notice what helps them grow and notice what helps them not grow and do, keep doing the things that help them grow and maybe stop doing the things that don't. Um, and that, is, that for me is like the, the, the most useful and simple thing to do.
0: Fabulous. Um, my penultimate question um, links back to a few things you've been speaking about today, and you've talked about um this whole idea of attention, attention, and it's come up again and again um, but again, in this digitized age in which we're work, in which we're living and working now, and particularly as a lot of workers are facing the threat of say technological unemployment and um, et etc, what do you think? is the most important human quality that we possess in this digital age and how can we cultivate it
1: well there's a a, (laughs) a end on the big end (laughs) wow boom how about that Um, I would sort of probably say giving a damn and like caring how like sort of whether it's yeah like as you implied in your question whether it's these these fears of robots taking over our jobs or Google making us stupid or um, social media creating ADHD, all these sort of fears that however valid they are or they aren't, I think caring about one's own well-being and mental well-being and not just saying, oh, the, the, that's just how it is. Like recognizing that we actually have some ability to, um, to we have some agency, we have some, like we, we don't live in a world where we're inevitably um, going to become like just ruined sort of emotionally and mentally by all this stuff. Um, because then, like if you care about it and you're like, I say it's a combination of giving them and curiosity and going, actually, what does, like, what is the thing that really helps me? What are the behaviours that actually don't help me? Um, Caring about that, being interested in that. And then sometimes, yeah, you will find that it's about, you might, for you, it might be throwing it, throwing the phone in the river or for you, for another person it might be working out how to, feel a sense of genuine person-to-person connection whilst browsing Twitter or Instagram or checking Snapchat or whatever. And, like, um, yeah, so, like, recognizing really, 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 like, it sounds stupid that we should care about our Um, well-being, but uh, I think that's really important because then when you care about it and you recognize the importance of it, um then you you do everything you can to protect it right um and so that would be if it was one thing yeah maybe um that would be it
0: and having that gumption to to care about yeah your, your own emotional and psychological well-being that you know that does bring out your own unique human qualities to either solve a problem or yeah, to yeah
1: exactly you know, and not just roll not just rolling over and going hey well that's the internet deal with it uh, I think that's a like just as a small well not a small example a massive example so um like the if you think of a company like like okay most powerful well Facebook aside most powerful tech well probably more powerful than Facebook so Google like they the whole area of sort of YouTube comments, right, which is some of the most disgraceful, disgusting, abusive part of our modern culture. Um, And Google's position on it is broadly, hey, well, that's just what it's like. People are dicks. Um, Mm. But at the same time, they're putting Wi-Fi on balloons. They're building driverless cars they're doing these incredible technological feats but they can't solve a problem like abusive misogynistic youtube comments um mm. is that because a is that because that's an impossible problem to solve or is it because they don't give a damn um or it's too complex too much hassle to deal with um I think we all we too easily default to this idea of, well, that's what the internet's like. I just, I just, uh, I think that's not good enough. Um, and so if we just throw our hand as from a personal that's at an industry global perspective, but on an individual perspective, if we just say, well, iPhones are addictive, that's just what it's like, then mm-hmm. that's not just, that's not giving us a chance, right? Um, so we have to give ourselves a chance
0: fantastic Rowan we've unfortunately come to the end of the interview um where can people find out more about you and your work
1: um all sorts of places so <laughs> our comp- my company is called mindfulness everywhere um we're easily found mindfulness uh, um through budify and sleepfulness now you can get a taste of the kind of stuff we do, and also obviously through the book, This Is Happening, which is out in, you have a really global audience, so it's worth mentioning. It's out currently in the UK and Australia and New Zealand and South Africa and some other places, but the the American version and Canadian version doesn't come out until a little bit later. We haven't announced the, the dates for that. And um, a German language version comes out in April, but it is available in the UK if you're super keen, um, but it should be out in other country, a country near you, um, if not right now, then soon. Brilliant.
0: Well, look, Rohan Gunatilaka, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Right. Have really, really great.